as we prepare to hear and receive God's word preached, we are reminded from Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. As you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word for today's sermon. Taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Ron. We are in the middle of our study of the book of Romans, and in that study, we're in the middle of our study of Romans chapter 8. We are taking five weeks to look at this closing section, verses 31 through 39, and it begins with that question, what shall we say to these things? And the context of the these things includes, we could say, all of Romans up to this point including the blessing of our union with Jesus Christ. So Paul proclaims in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the context of the these things includes the overall theme of the book, the righteousness of God or the gospel of God. How can sinful people be made right with a holy God? And we have seen in the book that it's clear that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So what shall we say to these things? And then Paul follows that up with five main questions. And we are taking one week or one sermon to look at each one. So today we come to that third question. We'll focus in on verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. And Paul is writing this last section of Romans chapter 8 for our comfort, for our hope, for our joy. He wants us to know that we can have the full assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. He wants us, like him, to be in awe of the goodness and the glory of God, to rejoice in God our Savior as we learn to trust him, to enjoy God as our loving Heavenly Father rather than fear him as a condemning judge. And so now Paul asks this next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And in asking that question, Paul brings us into the courtroom. We are on trial. What will the verdict be? And I think we, we might all be able to agree that, that no, one's, no one likes to have charges brought against them. It doesn't feel good to have charges brought against you, whether they're true or whether they're false. They can bring a sense of condemnation, feelings of guilt, and shame. This could be particularly difficult for some of you. Perhaps you grew up in a home, or maybe you are in a home right now where there is only charge after charge after charge against you, and almost never an encouraging word, whether it's from a parent or a spouse or even a sibling. You never measure up. You can never be good enough. You're always falling short, always lacking, always disappointing. The focus is on your faults, whether real or imagined, and you are weighed down day after day after day with guilt and shame. Or maybe the charges don't come from outside you. Maybe they come from the inside. It's it's not the charges of others that burden you or or burden you with condemnation, but your own self-indictments. Some of us just seem to be wired to bring constant charges against ourselves, and that can lead to oppressive, even paralyzing effects, weighing us down with guilt and shame. We all feel guilt and shame at times. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we deal with it? Some of us will play the comparison game, right? We just find somebody who's worse than us. And then we can feel better about ourselves. Or some of us will play the distraction game. How can I dull the pain? And so we'll self-medicate. Food or alcohol or drugs or mindless entertainment. Or some of us might resurrect that performance treadmill. I'll just work hard. Find something I'm good at that I can take pride in, that I can boast in. And beloved, none of those are good options. They are all destructive in various ways. And none of them can actually deal with our guilt and our shame at its root. But the good news is, God has a remedy. He has a way to deal with it. And it's found here in verse 33. The cure for all the charges against you, wherever they come from, and true removal and healing, and forgiveness for all your guilt and shame. The remedy is the utterly undeserved, freely given grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace of never being charged successfully with any fault before God. Paul's asking, 
Who can make any charge stick against God's elect, his chosen people? And the answer is nobody. No one. And beloved, I pray this morning that you will once again feel the freedom and the joy and the peace and the wonder of this glorious truth. That you will hear, that you will believe the voice of the Lord your God. Louder. And you'll give more weight to it. You'll hear it more often than the voice of your accusers. That the powerful, life-giving, true word of God will drown out and drive out the condemning word of men. Paul asks this question to remove all guilt and shame before God from your life. He asks this question to help you know. You know you have an assurance, a security of salvation and love and acceptance and favor and approval from God himself that is unshakable. So Paul asks this question in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He asks that to drive home this main point. You are God's chosen people, holy and beloved. And God, the judge of all the earth, declares you to be righteous and so you are his forever and you are righteous forever and to drive home that main point today we'll consider four as four aspects of verse 33 we'll look at the charge the one who justifies what it means to be justified and what it means to be elect <clears throat> so let's begin with that word charge now remember The scene is a courtroom. And so that word charge, in the New Testament, it's always used as a legal term. So for example, one example is found in Acts 26 when Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he's making his defense. And so Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations. There's that same word. That's translated charge in Romans 8. I'm making my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And Paul, who wrote Romans through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was familiar with charges, with accusations against himself. He was put in prison because of them and eventually would be put to death. Now, Romans chapter 8 is not talking about charges in a human court, but in the court of heaven before the judgment of God. So who can bring a charge against us that would make us guilty before God. And we might ask, well, who accuses us in this way? And beloved, the first and foremost answer is Satan, our adversary. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And we're told that he accuses us day and night before God. This is Satan, the father of lies. He is a liar from the beginning. He is behind all charges, all accusations against you in this way. Now, he can work through others. He can also work through your own conscience. You know, Satan does not want anyone to be a child of God. And if you are a child of God, he doesn't want you to believe 
that you are a child of God. He doesn't want you to live like you are a child of God. He does not want God to be glorified in your life through a life of repentance and faith and trust and worship. So what does he do? He accuses you. He will accuse you. He will bring charges against you because he wants to fill your heart with guilt and shame. Why? So you do not believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, what are you going to do? You're going to worship God. You're going to trust him and love him and honor him. You're going to enjoy him as your loving heavenly father. And so Satan will accuse you. He'll bring charges against you. He can do this on his own. He can work through others. He can work through even your own conscience. Now you might say, hey, wait a minute. minute. Doesn't God work through others? Doesn't God work through my conscience? Isn't that a gift from God to convict me of sin, to help me grow? Yes, indeed it is. But this is what makes Satan such a powerful, effective adversary. Because he appears as an angel of light. He aims to use God's good gifts for evil purposes. So the question is, how do we discern the accusations of Satan from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And I believe there's really a simple way to do this. You see, what Satan does is Satan will show you your sin. He only wants you to see your sin and focus on your failure. Satan will always magnify sin in order to lead to despair and condemnation, to produce guilt and shame. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never show you your sin without also showing you your Savior. He always leads you to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ before your eyes, in your heart. Not your sin, but always your Savior. And beloved, this is what encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ do as well. We follow the lead of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit always magnifies Christ to lead to forgiveness and praise, thanksgiving and worship and new obedience from love. The Holy Spirit drives you to the cross, to Christ. He says, look at Jesus. Satan will drive you to despair. He'll say, look at yourself. Look at your sin. He wants you to look anywhere but at Jesus. Satan wants you to see your sin and create isolation and despair in your heart, distance from God, but the Holy Spirit will show, your, your, show you your sin to draw you to Christ that you might draw near, that you might enjoy this fellowship and communion with the one who loves you. So how do we respond to the accusations of Satan? I love what Martin Luther said. And like any person, we don't agree with everything that Luther said or did. But I love what he said here. When Satan brings an accusation, he says, say this to him. You don't know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you would like to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. Isn't that great? Now, how could he say that? Why would Luther say that? Because of Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So what is he saying? He's saying, go ahead. Lay out all the charges that you or anyone can bring. They won't, they cannot stick. It does not matter. 
It's like that earlier, earlier question. If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter who's against us when God is for us. Everyone, all the world, Satan and all his hosts can be against us. It does not matter. They are nothing before almighty God. The same is true here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It doesn't matter. Satan, bring all you want. Other people, bring all you want. My own conscience, bring all you want. No charge can stand. Why? Because God himself, the judge, has justified you. He has declared you righteous. And that's the main point that Paul is making here in verse 33. God is the one who justifies. One pastor says the emphasis here is on the actor, not on the act. It's more on who justifies than on what justification is. Now we'll look at both this morning, but you need to understand that emphasis. It's on the one who justifies more so than the act of justification itself. That's the main point. God, the judge, has declared you righteous. Now, why is this so significant? Why is it so important? Remember, we're in a courtroom. This is legal language. And so in the world of courts and laws, where this language comes from, the acquittal of one judge might be overturned by a higher court or a higher judge. So what good would it be if a judge in a lower court acquitted you when you were guilty, if a higher court could come and bring a charge against you. So the reason Paul emphasizes the actor and not the act, it is God who justifies, is because he's saying there's no higher court above God. There's no higher judge, no higher authority. So beloved, if this God, this judge acquits you, If God is the one who declares you righteous in his sight, no one can appeal. No one can claim a technicality. No one can call for a mistrial. No one can overturn his ruling. No one else can bring a charge against you. God's judgment is final and it is complete. So beloved, for all of you who trust in Jesus, God is the one who justifies you. Not a human judge, not a great prophet, not a pastor, not an angel from heaven, not even yourself through your own good works, but God, the creator of the world, the ruler of the universe, the judge of all the earth. It is God who justifies you. This is what Paul is emphasizing in this question and answer. It is God, the highest, the supreme judge, who justifies you. Now one thing that we must see from this is the fact that there is a day of judgment coming. And this is a warning for all of us, for everyone that we know. In the book of Hebrews it says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Or in the end of Romans, when we get to chapter 14, we'll see Paul write, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. God is the judge of all the earth, and every one of you will give an account before him. The bad news is, left to ourselves, we are all guilty. 
There is no lack of legitimate charges that God himself can bring against us. There is a plethora of them. And, and we have no excuse for them. We have transgressed against his perfect law. We have failed to obey his good commands. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our every sin, every one of them, deserves God's righteous and just wrath and punishment. The day of judgment is coming and we are guilty. This is the bad news. This is the warning that is given to every one of us. But there is good news as well. And this is what we have been seeing all throughout the book of Romans. That God the judge himself has made a way for guilty lawbreakers to be forgiven, to be set free, to be declared righteous. And this way is summed up in that phrase, it is God who justifies. This justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And we have talked about this often in our study through the book of Romans. So this morning, I simply want to review it briefly with the shorter catechism definition and then give you a new illustration. So first, that question. The shorter catechism asks, what is justification? And here is the wonderful, profound, simple, clear answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace. It's something God does, not something we do. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we see there are two aspects to justification in that answer. There's a negative and a positive, we might say. The negative side, our sins are taken away. They are forgiven. And then the positive side, we have righteousness credited to us. Our sins are forgiven through the death of Jesus, righteousness credited to us through the life and resurrection of Jesus. And so, beloved, learn and know this. Jesus' life, his resurrection, are just as essential to our salvation as his death. Now, that's the brief review. Now, I want to also give you a new illustration. And so I invite you, I invite you children especially, uh, anyone under the age of 18 to join in with me with this, but any age can join with me as well. I received this illustration. I saw it first from Dr. James Boyce. I think he got it from maybe Donald Gray Barnhoff. So those are two uh, chosen, holy, beloved people of God who are right now enjoying the fruit of their justification before the face of Jesus. Right now, this very moment. So the illustration goes like this. So you have to have something in your hands. Maybe it's your worship guide or maybe you have some other book or something, a Bible, any book that you can put in your hands. And the start of this illustration, your right hand is going to represent Jesus Christ and your left hand is going to represent you. All right? Right hand represents Christ. Left hand represents you. Whatever you're holding in your hand, put that in your hand, left hand that represents you. That represents your sin. You are weighed down by sin. You are guilty before a holy God. You have sin. And your right hand needs to be empty. That hand represents Jesus. There's no sin on Jesus. He is sinless, spotless, undefiled. But what happens at the cross? Jesus comes and he came to take away the sin of his people. So at the cross, when you trust in Jesus, your sin is put on Jesus. 
You transfer that to Jesus. And now, where is your sin? It's no longer on you. It's been taken away by Jesus himself. And he has nailed it to the cross. He's buried it in his tomb. It will never find you again. It's gone forever. Look at your hand representing you. It's clean. It's clear of all charges. That's why I keep asking you, how much sin is in your account before the face of God? Look at it. Empty. None. Gone forever. That's the first part of this great exchange. Your sin is taken away. But now we do the illustration again. Remember, your right hand represents Jesus Christ. Your left hand represents you. Now, whatever it is you're holding, you put it on Jesus. This now represents the righteousness of Christ. The perfect, complete, full righteousness of Christ. He is full of it, right? You have none. You are not righteous. Jesus said we must be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. We are not And we cannot enjoy God unless we are made righteous. So what happens? When you trust in Christ, his righteousness is credited to you. Now look at that. I tricked you a little bit. I had two. Jesus is still righteous, right? He doesn't lose his righteousness. He maintains it, but it's also credited to our account. So now we are perfectly righteous. It's the same. No sin in your account. How much righteousness is in your account? The full, complete, full righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call the great exchange. And it is summed up so well for us in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might then become the righteousness of God. Amen? Hallelujah, what a wonderful truth this is for us. And beloved, this is the judgment that has been made in God's courtroom. This is the way of salvation. There's no other way because there is no other way for your sin to be forgiven. There's no other way for you to be made righteous. So on the day of judgment, when you stand to give an account before God, all of you who trust in Jesus and only those who trust in Jesus, you will be judged not on the basis of your life. Not on the basis of your performance. Not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of the life of Jesus Christ. On his work. And beloved, he has taken all your sin, all your guilt away, and he has clothed you with his righteousness. So this means that God, God being the one who has justified you, God is the one who has cleared you of all charges on all counts, not just one charge, not just one sin, but all past, present, and indeed future. He's cleared you. So beloved, you're cleared on every charge. And everyone that could be thought of, everyone that could be brought against you, no charge against you can possibly stand. It is God who justifies This is a once-for-all finished judgment based on the once-for-all finished work of Jesus Christ. So all conceivable charges against you are already answered. This is the supreme judgment that God has made, and this is why Paul asks, who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
And this is why Martin Luther says this, another wonderful quote. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and he declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has made satisfaction on my behalf, one who has suffered in my place, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I will be also. Amen. I have that quote written, and underneath it, in my notebook at home, I wrote these words, I don't understand it. Grant me faith to believe it. That you, O oh God, have turned a wretched sinner into a saint. One of your beloved children. And so one more question this morning. Who is it that receives this amazing verdict? Who is it that is justified? Who is this good news for? What did Paul ask? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So this good news, this justification, this salvation from judgment, from judgment is for God's elect. It's for his chosen people. Every word matters, right? These are the very words of God. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's communicating to his people. So he's, he uses that. It's not a throwaway word. He puts that at the end to give us that, that final piece of full assurance. He's telling us, God's the one who chose you before the foundation of the world. He's telling us, God's the one who's doing something here. Salvation is 100% the work of God. Beloved, you are God's elect. And you can know that to be true. If you have faith in Jesus, that is a sign that you belong to God. That he chose you before you were ever born. So is that how you think of yourself as God's elect, as a member of the chosen people of God? The scriptures repeatedly refer to you in that way. Colossians chapter three, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So you are holy. You are holy before the face of God. You've been set apart for God, for, for God. You are saints. You are righteous. Not only forgiven of your sin, but positively made righteous. And you are loved by God. The scriptures call you beloved. That's why I use that word over and over and over again. It's because I want you to know there is no one in heaven or earth who loves you more than Jesus Christ. You are beloved. God's chosen people, holy and beloved. God chose you to be his before the foundation of the world and God, the judge, has declared you to be righteous so you are his forever and you are, no doubt about it, no question, you are righteous forever. Is that how you see yourself? If you do, do you know what this means? It means all the guilt and shame that you feel is gone forever. It means when you feel that guilt and shame, if it's leading you anywhere except for the cross of Christ, it's lying to you. And it's not the work of the Spirit. It's been taken away. 
You know, Paul had this peace. He had this transformed view of himself. And he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of any charge against myself. But I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul had this transformed view of himself. He knew that he was God's chosen person, holy and beloved. And so he did not let the charges that others might bring against him fill him with guilt and shame. And that way we might say Paul didn't care what others thought about him. But not in the worldly way, right? The world will say, hey, listen, you don't need to care what other people think about you. Just care what you think about you. And in a sense, exalting yourself to God's throne. Making yourself your own God, your own king. That's not what Paul did. He didn't care what others thought about him in the sense of the charges they might bring against him because he only cared what God thought. And in that way, he didn't also, he didn't trust his own judgment. So there's a sense in which he didn't care what he thought about himself. He didn't let the charges his own conscience might bring against him fill him with guilt and shame. Or the lack of charges. Don't miss that either. See, it wasn't Paul's peace of conscience, a clear conscience that gave him peace. He could have a clear conscience and still be wrong. Conscience is indeed a gift from God and God works through it, but it needs to be calibrated according to the word of God. We've talked about that in the past. You know, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul called himself the chief or the worst of sinners. So he was well acquainted with his sins, but he didn't let them define him. He didn't let them crush him. And so, beloved, when you know, when you believe, when you rest in, when you trust in this glorious truth, God, the supreme judge, has justified you, you're not in the courtroom anymore. You're not in the courtroom anymore. And so when you know that, when a charge is brought against you, it can even be true. But it doesn't devastate you. You can listen to the charges that others might bring up against you and you can see them as opportunities to grow and to change to be made more like your savior jesus christ in fact the more that we understand the gospel the more that we rest in our union with jesus christ god works in us this great desire to be more like jesus and so we welcome when others might point out the blind spots in our lives They might help us see our sin. We're not condemned by it. We confess it and we say, Lord, help me to change, to be more like you. Now, how could Paul have this transformed view of himself? How could he not be crushed by guilt and shame? That might sound foreign to us. Even those of us who have grown up in the church, we might think this is so hard. How could he write 1 Corinthians 4? Because of Romans 8, 33. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Did you hear that repetition in 1 Corinthians 4? What do you say at the end? It is the Lord who judges me. So what's he saying? It's God's opinion. It's God's judgment that matters most to him. In fact, God's judgment is really the only one that matters. So here's the good news of the gospel. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that courtroom, beloved, you get the verdict before the performance. Right? Every other approach to God, every other religion works backwards. The atheist might say, there is no God. So how do they have a good self-image, good self-worth based on their performance, on what they do? Performance leads to the verdict. 
the Buddhist, the performance leads to the verdict. The Muslim, how in the world can they be right with God? They must earn it. Performance leads to the verdict. Roman Catholics who confuse faith alone in Christ with works that follow faith depend on their works. Performance leads to the verdict. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, the performance leads to the verdict. What's in common with all of these approaches to God? Every day you're in the courtroom. Every day you are on trial. In Christianity, the verdict of God the judge brings about the performance. That's why Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why God, your heavenly father, has pronounced over you. I mean you. Every one of you that I see here with my eyes who is trusting in Christ. Those who may be watching through the live stream who are trusting in Christ. God pronounces over you, not only over his own son, Jesus. But just as he pronounced over his own son, Jesus, he says over you, you are my child whom I love. And don't miss the next part. Maybe a parent never said these words to you, but God, your father, says them to you. With you, I am well pleased. He delights in you. He's made that true of you. And so now you live into it. You grow up into it. You don't earn it. The verdict is in. And now I live on the basis of the verdict from favor, not for favor. If you grow up in this church, you're a young child and the Lord tarries for another 20 years and he gives me life for another 20 years and I can preach the gospel over that time and you are gracious enough to continue to come and hear me say the same thing over and over and over again, that's one thing I want you to hear. You live from favor, not for it. And beloved, I want you to grow and I want to grow myself and enjoying God as our loving heavenly father. We have his favor. We don't earn it. We, we live from it. And because God loves you and accepts you, we're free, right? We don't have to do good things to build up our resume. I don't have to do good works to get God to like me more, to make myself look good. I now can do good simply for the joy of doing good for the glory of God. I can help people out of the joy of the Lord. Not so I can feel better about myself, not to fill up my own emptiness. We can love one another and it doesn't matter if they love us back. It doesn't matter how they respond to us. Why? Because I don't need your love to fill me up because I already have the love of Christ and I'm filled to the full. So I can love you as Christ has loved me. It makes no difference how you treat me. All my feelings might get hurt, but I can deal with that. It's not going to change my standing before God. Beloved, you're not in the courtroom anymore. You are not in trial anymore. Jesus has gone there on your behalf. So now, the only person whose judgment counts, he looks at you and he declares, you are righteous. You are loved. He delights in you. Now I know that if you come to proclamation, this is not the first time you've heard this. Right? You hear it in some form every week. So why am I saying it again today? Well, first and foremost, because it's in the text. And we preach the text. 
what the word of God says. But also, because I know every week, in fact, every day, Satan is trying to put you back in the courtroom. And he'll work through others. He'll work through your own conscience. Every day, he'll heap guilt and shame upon you. We must resist him, beloved. Stand firm in our faith. How do we do that? By looking to Jesus. Preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You hear it here every week because you need it. Beloved, in fact, you need to hear it and believe it every day, every moment. The judge has declared the verdict. You are righteous. Court is adjourned. So don't let anyone put you back on trial. Your guilt, your shame have been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. What then shall we say to these things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Will you say, not just now, here on the Lord's Day, but every day this week, over and over again, no one, no one can bring a charge against me. God himself has justified me. Thanks be to God. Amen.